The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church Aid study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC8. This is Secret Church 8, Episode 2. Okay. Pull out, have your Bible with you. We're not going to turn to all these passages, but there will be a few that we do turn to. The gospel. We're starting here because the gospel, the gospel transforms everything. And there's some things along the way that we're going to talk about tonight that if we're not clear on the gospel, we'll get really, really confused. So I want to make sure we're on the same page. Romans 3, 21 through 26, like memorize that paragraph in scripture. One of the most beautiful, one of the most important, profound paragraphs in scripture. I put under that a definition that if, if you were to ask me to summarize the gospel, this is what I'd say. That the gospel is the good news, the just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. Now, what I want us to think about is five different threads of the gospel. Five different threads of the gospel. And you've got them listed there, and we're going to unpack each one of these. We're going to fly through this, because I want us to get to the possessions, but we've got to see this first. First, the character of God. The gospel starts with the glory of God. Second, the sinfulness of man. Sinfulness of man. Sufficiency of Christ. Third, God, man, Christ. Necessity of faith. It's how we respond to the gospel. And then the urgency of eternity. Character of God, sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ, necessity of faith, urgency of eternity. And so I want us to think about all five of those threads. And this is important because when we get to those conclusions, those 18 conclusions about money and possessions, we're going to look at them through the lens of these five threads of the gospel. The character of God. Few things about God amidst all of his attributes that are, that are foundational for understanding the gospel. He is our creator. This is 1-1. One, one. Isaiah 40, he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And the fact that he's our creator means that we belong to him. He owns us. That's huge. We are not our own. We belong to another. The one who, who created us has authority over us. We are not masters of our own fate or captains of our own soul. We belong to another. He's our creator. Second, he's our judge. He's our judge. Psalm 7, Isaiah chapter 5. Which means that we are accountable to him. This is the stark reality of the gospel. Every single person in this room will one day stand before God to be judged, and he will be just. He will be just. He will render to each person, Romans 2, 6, according to his works. Now, we're going to talk about what that means, but this is a, an important reality. He is our judge, our creator, and our savior. Praise God, he is not a judge who is indifferent to our needs. He loves us. We belong to him, we're accountable to him, and we need him. We need him in every second. We need our God for every breath we breathe. He is loving toward us. We are not a, a self-sustaining people. We are a God-sustained people. Just creator, loving creator, the character of God. Second thread, the sinfulness of man. We've got who God is, now who we are. We are morally evil. Now, that doesn't sit well with us initially. You say, well, you have sinned before or you've done some wrong things. Okay, yeah. You're evil? 
That seems to take it a little too far, but that's how far the Bible takes it. Genesis 8, 21, every, in, every intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Luke chapter 11, Jesus practically assumes that we know we're evil. We're born with an evil, God-hating heart. People say, well, I've always loved God. No, you haven't. Like you may have loved a God you created in your own mind, but the one true God you have hated. The Bible says we're morally evil, we're spiritually sick, we need a doctor, Jesus said. At the core of our being, we have a malignant spiritual disease that far outweighs any cancer or physical sickness that we will ever experience. Morally evil, spiritually sick, we're slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. We're not free to live however we want to. We, we're slaves to ourselves and slaves to sin. John 8, Romans 6. The reality is we're in the snare of the devil. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, morally evil, spiritually sick, slaves to sin, and blinded to truth. Our eyes are blinded, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says. We don't accept the things of God. We're darkened in our own understanding. Blinded to truth, we are children of wrath. How is this for the power of positive thinking? Children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3 says. Enemies of God, James 4, Romans 5. Ultimately, we are spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Dead through sin, Romans 5. Dead, Ephesians 5 says. The wages of sin is death. Now let those soak in. Like, look at those. Morally evil, spiritually sick, slaves of sin, blind to the truth, children of wrath, spiritually dead. That is hopeless. Can those whose every inclination is evil choose good? If you're sick, can you make yourself well? If you're a slave, can you set yourself free? If you're blind, can you give yourself sight? If you're an object of wrath, can you appease that wrath? If you are dead, how many of, how many of us decided, okay, I'm ready to come to life? The glaring reality of the gospel is that apart from divine intervention, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, we are helpless and hopeless to do anything about our spiritual condition on our own. And that's huge. It's huge because we dumb this down at every turn with the gospel in our culture. We live in a land of self-improvement. And we say, well, the problem is you've done some wrong things in your life, but the beauty is God has a plan for your life. So a few easy steps... Pray this prayer, say these words, and you're in. And it makes sense. We live in a land of self-improvement where a dose of church attendance followed by a prayer, pretty good, moral, decent life, seems to overcome our sinfulness. But the reality is we cannot manufacture salvation. and We cannot program it. We cannot even initiate it. We need God to do this in us. Now we're getting to the beauty of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ, because he has done it in Christ. His life displayed the righteousness of God. We were slaves to sin, so we needed someone who was not a slave to sin, who conquered sin with their life. It's what 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 4, John 8 all say. Fully man, fully O God, he obeys the law perfectly, no deceit. John 8, he says, Convict me. Show me where I have sinned. His life displayed the righteousness of God. His death satisfied the wrath of God. Romans 3.25, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a great word. Like, let's say that one together, all right? So one on three, propitiation. One, two, three. 
Propitiation. Isn't that a great word? It means one who would turn aside wrath. That the wrath do your sin and my sin from a holy God. His holy and good wrath. And his wrath is good. Like we don't think of wrath as good, but it is a really good thing that God hates that which destroys us. And he poured out all of his holy wrath. Do your sin and my sin upon his son. And his son turned aside his wrath from us. In my place condemned, he stood. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. That's propitiation. It's really good. His death satisfied the wrath of God. And his resurrection demonstrated the power of God. God vindicated the work of Christ on the cross for our sins by rising him from the grave. I love the end of Colossians 2, 9 through 15. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Character of God, holy, just, creator, and savior, sinfulness of man, dead objects of wrath, morally evil, sick, Christ comes. His life displays his righteousness. His death satisfies God's wrath and his resurrection demonstrates God's power. So how does this become a reality in our lives? The necessity of faith. Now follow with me here. What we've just talked about, Christ is the basis of our salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has done the work. Jesus has conquered sin. He has purchased righteousness for you and me. And what that means is there is no work for you to do. Like none. Jesus has done it all. His work is the basis of our salvation. It's what Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 are all about. If I were to ask you tonight, how do you know that you are righteous before God? What would your response be? If, I were, if we were one-on-one, how, would you, how do you know that you are righteous before God? If the first words that come out of your mouth are, because I, then I want to encourage you to be cautioned. Because the only way to be made righteous before God is because Christ did what he did. It's only in looking to what he did. He is the only basis, not what I did, this or that. Christ is the basis of our justification before God. So Christ is the basis. Now, how does that become a reality for us? Faith is the means of our salvation. Faith is the anti-work. We're justified, Galatians 2, 15 through 16 says, by works of the law, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith trust, surrender, realization. There's nothing you can do but trust in what has been done for you. Now I want us to unpack this a bit because this is where it's going to get a little bit, of com- get a little bit complex when we see different things in Scripture. By initial faith in Christ, we are made right before God the Father. Romans 5, 1, we were justified by faith. We were enemies of God. We were reconciled to God by faith, Romans 5 says. So that's what happens. Justification made right before God the Father by faith in Christ. We experience the new birth. You remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says to him, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So what happens when we're born again? Well, first, God opens our eyes. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You remember the whole context behind this passage. Nicodemus is a, is a good man. He's a religious leader. He is radically devoted to the word. He has taught others the word. But his realization needs to come that he is dead and he needs life, that he's never been born spiritually with all that he's done. God, help us to see this in a religious subculture here in the South. No matter what we have done, we are still dead. You can't make yourself be born. God has to open your eyes to this, and then God has to change our heart. He said you must be born of water and of spirit. You need a radical change that happens inside of you. Salvation, don't miss this, does not happen from the outside in. Salvation happens from the inside out. God changes our, our heart. It's what Titus 3 talks about. He talks about washing our hearts. First Peter 1, we're born again, not of perishable seed, but of unperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word does this. The whole background behind John chapter 3 is Ezekiel chapter 36, where, where Jesus taught, where, where the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel, God talks about water and spirit. I want to remind you what, what the reference is there. What happens when God changes our heart? First, he cleanses us. Ezekiel 36, the background here in the Old Testament, I will sprinkle clean water in you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's what happens when we're born again. God changes our heart, he cleanses us of our sin, washes us by the power of his word. But that's not all, water and what? Spirit. It's born of water and spirit. He cleanses us and second, he indwells us. Indwells us. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Put my spirit within you. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God puts his spirit inside of us. And that's what we need. We don't just need cleansing. This is what we oftentimes think of when we think of the gospel and salvation. We think, well, I've been cleansed from my sin. Now I'm going to go live however I want to. It's not the gospel. And you can't be cleansed from your sin and then just go to live however you want to. You're cleansed from your sin and you're indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that means you live how He wants to now. And everything in your life is different. This is huge. Like you see all these Barna studies about what born again Christians do. In order to be classified as a born again Christian in those studies, all you have to do is say that you've had a significant faith, you've made a significant faith commitment to Jesus Christ. You've got to say that. Like most every intoxicated person I've ever met on the street says that. Oh, and the second thing is you've got to believe that you're going to heaven. Oh, okay. And so they go on and they talk about how born-again Christians live just like the world. Born-again Christians do this just like the world and do this just like the world. And they've got the stats to show it. But the reality is their stats may be right, but their conclusions are totally wrong. If people are living just like the world, then that's not showing us that born-again Christians look just like the world. It's showing us that there's some people who think they're born again that are totally not. May have done this or that, but they've not been cleansed and changed from the inside out. That's a hugely important question for every single one of us in this room. Has God changed your heart? An, an eternally important question. Has God changed your heart? Not 
Did you walk the aisle or did you do the deal? Like, has your heart been cleansed and indwelled by the Spirit of God? He opens our eyes to our need for Him. He changes our heart. He enables our belief. The second half of that story in John chapter 3, verse 11 through 21 Belief is mentioned over and over again, seven different times. God enables our belief. And, and this, is, this is key. I phrase this intentionally here. God enables our belief. Now, this is something, obviously, that we do. We believe. Nobody else can do this, for, do, do this for us. We're responsible to God for this. Our eternal destiny hinges on belief. But I want us to see that belief is still something that happens by the grace of God. Look at what Scripture says. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Acts 11, you see people coming to Christ. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Who opened the door of faith? God did. Acts 15, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Acts 16, one who heard us was a man, woman named Lydia, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia's selling purple goods. The Lord opened her heart. Now, this can be confusing. We say, well, what, am I, what do I do? What does God do in salvation? Here's the reality. Faith is our act. We believe. But faith is only possible because of God's act. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, we've talked about that before at Secret Church, like 1230 in the middle of the night. And, and the answer is it's, it's a mystery. But it's beauty. Because our salvation is not dependent on our works. It's totally dependent on His grace. That's, that's the whole point. Look at the New Testament. You'll see that belief involves. What is belief? By his grace, we turn from our sin and ourselves. We repent. That's the first Christian invitation. Next chapter, Acts 3, we repent. We turn from sin and selves. And by his grace, we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. He saves us from our sins and he reigns as Lord over our lives. Lord is the dominant term we see used with Jesus in Acts and in Romans. Interestingly, we don't see in Scripture anyone talking about accepting Jesus as our personal Savior. Instead, we see people confessing Jesus as Lord and King who reigns over us. Put all that together. That Christ is the basis of our salvation. Faith is the means of our salvation. That gives us radical confidence. Our salvation is certain. Isn't that good news? Like it's not based on how well we do tomorrow or the next week, or the next year. It's based on His grace, what has been done for us. He has forgiven us, put His Spirit inside of us. Ephesians 1, 1 John 5 says, we have confidence before God. So by initial faith in Christ, we're made right before the Father. We're born again. But then, obviously that's not where this whole thing stops. Second, by continual faith in Christ, we now walk with God as our friend. We walk with God as our friend. People... You might, people might claim to be right before God the Father, but if they're not walking with God as friend, then there's question about whether or not they're right before God the Father. Follow with me here. This is where it can get really confusing. We experience a new birth in salvation, and we also experience a new life. Galatians 2. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by what? Faith. And so we're saved by faith, and then we live out our salvation by what? 
faith. Our whole life is by faith. We walk, we live by faith. And what that results in is radical obedience. Radical obedience. Here's the deal. When you're right before God the Father and you're walking with God as friend, then you never have to fear his commands. When you're right before God the Father and you know and walk with God as friend, then you never have to be afraid of his commands. You're free to do whatever he says because you know he's good. He's good enough to save you and to provide for you as father and friend. So, basis for our salvation, Christ. Means of our salvation, faith. And works are the evidence of our salvation. Works are the evidence of our salvation. Now, we need to run Run, run from a works righteousness that thinks our works makes us right before God. But that does not mean that works are totally disconnected in the holistic picture of salvation. That's where I want you to follow with me here. They are not the basis of our salvation. They are not the means, but they are the evidence. Listen to James 2. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. He says in the middle there around verse 16. Some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith has works. And what's James saying here? Two things. Number one, he's saying that faith creates works. Faith creates works. And he uses Abraham as an example here. Think about Abraham. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that he was going to have a son. He was going to have descendants. And Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It really even goes back to Genesis 12 when he believed God and he began to follow God where he was leading him. But it says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now you get to Genesis chapter 22 and Abraham, in obedience to God, takes his son up on a mountain and is about to sacrifice his one and only son. When did Abraham have faith? When did he receive faith, put his faith in God? Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And the effect of faith was radical obedience, works. Faith creates works. That's where we see it. Even in Philippians 2, Paul, who's always going off on works, says we need to work out our own salvation. So how are we supposed to think about works? Well, faith creates works, but not works fueled by the flesh. That's often how Paul talks about works. Works that we do in order to earn our way to God. That's what he's talking about all throughout the book of Galatians. And over and over again, Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That leads to a life of legalism. Thinking that our works earn us favor before God. We've got to be on, on danger, cautioning against that at every turn. That brings no glory to God. Exalts man and what we can supposedly do to get to God. So when we say faith creates works, we're not talking about works that are fueled by the flesh. Life of legalism that exalts man instead of God. Instead, we're talking about works that are the fruit of faith. Works that are grounded in the result of faith in God. That's how James talks about works. And how Paul talks about some. But he talks about a life of love. Even Paul says What matters is faith working through love, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. This is the beauty of works that are created by faith. Follow this. As we trust God wholeheartedly, we abide in him, John 15. As we trust him, we obey him. 
And the fruit of trust in God is obedience to God. Did you see that? The fruit of trust in God is obedience to God. And as a result, this brings great glory to God. And so in this way, works are really, really, really good. Works not fueled by the flesh in order to earn favor before God. Works that are the fruit of, the f- fruit of faith, fruit of trusting in God. Works create faith and then works complete faith. James says at the end in James chapter 2, verse 26, Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did. And so our, our faith is completed in our works, that it, it comes to its full fruition in our works. And when that happens, God glorifies himself in salvation that is free. It's all based on him. I love John 3. Whatever he does, whatever does, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God glorifies himself in salvation that is free and God glorifies himself in lives that are full. Salvation that's free, lives that are full. We've got to fight this idea that you can be saved or born again and your life look exactly the same. That's not the point. It blasphemes God. He radically changes our lives, and faith in him produces fruit in our lives. That's why Jesus says, you'll see deeds in my people, and their deeds will glorify my Father in heaven. So, two summary statements. Make sure we're on the same page. Number one, the basis, the means, and the evidence of our salvation are only possible by the grace of God. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. Augustine said, God gives what he demands. So it's like, it's like with our sons. For, for my birthday, if I were to give my sons money to give me a present, did they really give me a present? Like, yes, and not really. Like I probably could have found something better with my money. But the reality is what they gave was made possible only by what I gave to them. Now, this is not a perfect illustration. Don't take it to its full end. But the reality is everything we give to God is that which we have received from God in the first place. It's all grace. And so any works, that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, I love this. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Here's what I picture. I picture Paul, he gets up in the morning and he says, I need grace today. And so all day long, he works. Like he works hard. And he gets to the end of the day, in his day, and he says, It was all grace. By grace, I'll get up in the morning and do it again. It's all grace and work. So works are good here. We don't need to run away from works, right? Works are good when they're produced by faith. I love this quote from Ian Thomas. Beware, least even as a Christian, you fall into Satan's trap. You may have found and come to know the God and the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving him sincerely as your redeemer. Yet if you do not enter into the mystery of godliness and allow God to be in you, the origin of his own image, you will seek, listen to this, you will seek to be godly by submitting yourself to external rules and regulations and by conforming to behavior patterns 
patterns imposed upon you by the particular Christian society that you've, cho- you've chosen and which you hope to be found acceptable. You will in this way perpetuate the pagan habit of practicing religion, the energy of the flesh, and in the very pursuit of righteousness, commit idolatry and honoring Christianity more than Christ. Like, I wish I wrote that. That's really good. You see this? You see this? This is huge. And why is this so important? Because when we talk tonight about what we need to do with our possessions, we need to realize it's only by God's grace that we can do those things. And in doing these things, we're not earning favor before God. In doing these things, we're acting out trust and faith in God. It's all by grace. Second summary statement. This one's big too. The basis, means, and evidence of our salvation are all ultimately involved in judgment before God. In judgment before God. Now, stay with me here. You stand before God in heaven. To use that age-old question, why, why should you be allowed into heaven? Your answer is because Christ has paid the price for my sins. Turned aside the wrath to me and risen with power over sins. The only basis I have to come in is, is Him. I trust Him. I cling to nothing in my life. There's nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Basis means, and in the background, as a life that absolutely confirms that was that was a reality. Now this is not this this background is not the basis by which I'm led into heaven. Absolutely not. That's Christ. It's not well I did this and this and this and this. No, it's faith. And 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 there's fruit of that faith, like James talks about and shows this was not some dead faith. This is real faith. And now these words that we see in Scripture, Matthew 7, Matthew 24, one who endures to the end will be saved. Does that mean we have to work for our salvation? No. It means faith endures. Judgment according to our works, Romans chapter 2. 1 Timothy 4, keep close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. You will save yourself. What does that mean? Repentance that produces deeds, Acts chapter 26. And this passage, it's appropriate for what we're talking about tonight, Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus says, because you did not feed the hungry and the sick, you will be thrown into eternal punishment. That's not saying because you did not do this and this and this and this. It's because you did not trust in Christ. This is key. Basis, faith, basis, Christ, faith is the means, works, the evidence. That leads us to our final thread of the gospel. That's, that's huge. Urgency of eternity. And this, this is simple. Heaven is a glorious reality for those who trust in Christ. Whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Our citizenship is in heaven. On the other hand, hell is a dreadful reality for those who die without Christ. And uh, it's at this point that I want to pause for just a second before we go any further. And I want want to ask you the question. I wish I could ask this one-on-one to every single person in this room. 
but just, just speaking to you, not the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. Has God given you a new heart? Have you been born again? Have you looked to Christ and Christ alone as the basis of your salvation? And have you thrown aside all your religious attempts to earn favor before him? And have you trusted in him alone? And if, you, if you've not done that, then I want to urge you tonight. Christ is good. He has paid the price for your sins. And you are free from your efforts to try to earn your way to the God of the universe. The God of the universe has made his way to you in Christ. And over the last few minutes, maybe he has opened your eyes. And maybe at this moment he is changing your heart. And if that's the case, I want to urge you to turn from your sin and yourself and to trust in Christ and, and be born again. Be brought to life. The gospel demands a decision. It demands a decision in every single life in this room. Will you turn from Jesus? You choose to live without Christ now and die without Christ forever? Or will you turn to Jesus? Die to yourself with Christ now and live with Christ forever. That, that is the most important question in this room. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical dot net